Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, if you're anything like me, and perhaps many of you are, you have some form of a list of things to do. And one of the simple pleasures of life is to hammer out stuff on that list of things to do. A few years ago now, um, when we had uh, all nine of our children still at home, and we had a lot of littles at the time, I remember uh, a certain Saturday that it was on my list to clean the garage. So here's how it went. Little boys running around the garage with diapers on in various states in those diapers, getting into the boxes, taking their shoes off, walking into the mud, bringing it into the garage. Conflict between some of the girls about setting the table and sweeping the floor. Complaining about lack of entertainment opportunities for that night. A trip and fall by one of my children up the stairs. Yes, it's, fo- it's possible to trip and fall up the stairs. Hitting the railing with a cut and a potential broken bone. And it seemed like that was all before lunch. And I asked my wife, which is telling, I guess, about my finger on the pulse at the time. Honey, is this normal? Is this normal? How do you ever get anything done around here? And she smiled patiently. And she talked to me and convinced me that we're we're not thinking right thoughts at that moment about our lives as parents. It's not about getting things done. It's about being faithful to obey God in the mundane Daily ins and outs of the grind. This is real life. This is real parenting. And listen, because this is not just for moms and dads here today. This is real ministry. This is real discipleship. This is our real calling as believers within this church. Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And you also have the passage in your bulletin. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and as you're turning, let me just quickly remind you of the context of the book of Deuteronomy. Remember, the Israelites had been rescued out of the bondage of slavery. For 400 years, they were in Egypt, and God came and rescued them out of that bondage. And the Israelites complained like the next moment, and due to a lack of faith that had accumulated over a little bit of time, they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And now, 40 years have passed. One generation of complainers 
was buried in the wilderness under the sand. And the next generation is now poised to finally enter into the promised land on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. And Moses, the preacher in the book of Deuteronomy, preaches three outstanding sermons. And that's what Deuteronomy is. They're exhortations from Moses to the people poised to enter the promised land. And his messages, Moses' messages are intended to challenge, to encourage, to admonish the new generation to have faith, to rely on God, to rely on his word, and to obey his word from their hearts so that they would enter into the land of blessing. And our passage really, in many ways, is at the very heart of the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you're not there, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that was read in our scripture reading, and I want you to find verse 4. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then it shall come to pass. Then it shall come to pass. This passage is a famous passage. You've heard of it. It's called the Shema. This is a Jewish confession of faith that, believe it or not, was recited by a faithful Jew twice a day, as well as two other Old Testament passages. Shema comes from the first Hebrew word in verse 4 that is translated hear. Hear, O Israel. Shema, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, Moses says, I know there are multiple gods in this land that we are going into in the fertility cult. They're all around you, but I'm telling you, hear me, the Lord alone is God. The Lord alone is your God. He is exclusively God. He is the one and only true existing God. He is totally unique. He is the God with absolutely no rivals. Hear, O Israel. And because of who he is, he demands that you hear. And hear, when we hear the word hear, we think we just have it come in one side and go out the other like some sort of auditory stimulus. That's not what the Hebrew word means. The word hear is to, yes, understand in your brain, but to hear means to listen. But it's not just hearing and listening. The word shema means to hear, to listen, and to obey these words. For the Hebrew to hear shema, he would hear obey. 
And now we see the theme of the Shema. Because Yahweh is the God with no rivals, He rightly demands unqualified obedience. Unqualified obedience from us, those who have been rescued from the slavery of sin. Because Yahweh is the God with no rivals, He rightly demands unqualified obedience from us, having rescued us from the slavery of sin. And so this text teaches us that we must hear and obey three commands. We must hear and obey three commands. Number one, to love Him wholly. Number two, to internalize His Word. And number three, to teach His ways. And I'm telling you that this passage is the Christian life. This passage is motherhood, fatherhood, singlehood, discipleship. This passage is for everybody, for grandparents. This passage is the Christian life lived out in the mundane moments, Monday through Friday. So number one, then, the first command we are to hear and obey is to love him wholly. To love him wholly. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In the Hebrew text, verse 5 begins with, could be best translated, then you shall love the Lord your God. These are sequential verses. This happens, then this happens, then this happens, and then this happens. So understand, we are called to love the Lord, and that flows, that flows out of verse 4, that we have a true knowledge of God, that we have, that we're loving the one true God. We don't love the God of our own imagination. We don't love a nebulous, unknown, unnamed, confusing God. We don't get to define this God. Our love flows out of a true knowledge of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Truth fuels ordinate love. Ordinate love is appropriate love. Love that flows from the truth. And Jesus picks up on this verse, doesn't he? So many times in the Gospels, he quotes this command and calls it the first and greatest command to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might. Now, I want to stop here for a second. We talk about loving God. It has to be more than simply getting verse 4 right, doesn't it? It flows out of verse 4, but you, know, you all know what love is in this room. You do. We know what love is. It's not simply head knowledge. If a man loves his wife, there's an exclusive, devoted, and constant relationship. There is selfless and willful service. When you love something or you love someone, you do that activity or you spend time with that person. It's how it works. That is love. And we all know that just because we don't want the sentimental, emotional overplay of love, 
that maybe has been paraded today, we are wrong if we remove the heart of emotion out of the word love. We all know what love is, and this is a command to love him wholly. There is no Christianity that is half-hearted sentimentality. Because look at our text, the second half of the verse. How do we love the Lord our God? There's three parallel expressions, beautiful, in the Hebrew text. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is how we love the Lord. Now watch this. The heart, then, number one, the heart to the Hebrew was the intellect, the emotion, and the will. That's the heart. You are to love God with the totality of your mind, with the totality of your emotion, with the totality of your will, which is your chooser, which means you don't love God until you choose to obey him. All of that is the heart. You love him first with your heart, and then secondly, with the totality of your soul, all your soul. Your soul is your essential being. You love God from the depths of your identity, from the depths of what makes you, you. You love God from, with all of your soul. And then third, and my favorite, you love God with all your might. In, virtually impossible to translate that Hebrew word as far as I can tell. That last word, might, doesn't get close. It's, it's as one scholar said, it's a, you love him with all your veriness. The best I can do with this is you're all in every capacity, loving God with the totality of your energy, joined with your very best personal ability. It is physical and emotional work and bodily discipline and energy, and you are all in to love God. So does Christianity know of half-hearted sentimentality? It just doesn't. Now, moms and dads here, I'm sure, have a brunch scheduled and there's going to be some celebrating of Mother's Day today, and I want you to encourage you to take notice that before we ever get to the section that we kind of all want to get to and get some practical stuff here about teaching our children, I want you to know this. We have moms and dads and grandparents and Christians and disciple-making disciples of Jesus Christ. We have this primary command to love God devotedly first. A wholehearted, whole person kind of love for God. This is a love that, that is, excludes the idea of giving him only just a part of you. This is a love that, that excludes the, the real possibility of getting to just hold on to a pet sin and not fight it. This is a love that cries out, Oh, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. And here's what I'm trying to say. We have to be pursuing a vertical love relationship with our God before we'll ever have anything to really give away from a horizontal level to others. And so that leads us to the second question. What does love, look, love for God look like? How does this love for God express itself? And that leads us to the second command to obey, namely the command to internalize his word. In verse 6, to internalize his word. These words, 
And by the way, good translation, then these words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. These words, not in your theological dictionary, not in your um, theological debate categories, these words shall be on your heart. They're internally appropriated and applied to our own hearts. Now listen, when someone takes the word of God and internalizes it to his heart, to her heart, applies it to our hearts, you are seeing the primary expression of their love for God. The one who really loves God loves his word. Peter tells us to long for the pure milk of the word. Loving God looks like longing for the word of God like a newborn baby gropes, and they do, gropes around for milk. Knowing God and knowing his word are inseparable. The word of God is not just to be studied with intellectual joy, but this text says these words shall be on your hearts. And we just define the heart. And the heart was your mind. Okay, it starts there. We have truth. The word should affect your emotion. The word should affect your will, your chooser. The word of God is not internalized upon your heart if you have not obeyed that word. Now, let me... You, have no, you do not know in the heart and have applied it internally to your heart until you have, by the Spirit, put it into practice. Because the heart includes the will. Be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, deceiving yourselves, James says. What does James mean? Decept, deceived about what? Here's what the deception is. Deceived to think that you love God. Because if you're not, if you're like, yeah, Jesus is my fire insurance, but I got my thing, then I think that what the text is saying is, do you really love God? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he is thinking of Shema when he quotes that. How do I internalize the word? That's the next question. So let's, because, let's think about this. Now, I'm not going to move, I'm going to move quickly over this today. But this is about taking the truth of God's word and meditating on those truths, mulling that truth over in your mind and heart. There's two real main sources for the word to become internalized. Either there's personal devotion, or there's public preaching. And in your, in your time with the Lord in the mornings, I can't stress for moms, for dads, for disciple-making disciples, for singles, for kids, for grandparents in this room, I don't care about our Sunday school. I'm, I'm just going to, this is not my notes. 
Sunday school programs, in this program, in that program, in this discipleship meeting, in that discipleship meeting, in this activity, in that activity. If we are not all seeking God on our own and say, teach me, teach me, teach me according to your word. Oh, show me your glory. Show me sin. I'm not leaving here until you bless me, Father. Oh, make this to come alive. I'm tired of being dry and dead. Stir me up, Father. Show me what this looks like. If we're not seriously seeking God that way, then we're not internalizing the, we, the word. And all of those teaching opportunities, all of those sermons, all of those VBSs, all of those things will be just flying away like smoke from a campfire into the night. So go to the Lord, brothers and sisters. Get up in the morning. Get some smelling salts. I call it coffee. And get with it, and that will become the best time of your day. And when you come to the public preaching of the Word of God, go to bed on Saturday night. Be well rested. Read the passage beforehand. Lord, show me your glory in this message. Do not let spiritual warfare take me away from the blessing of this text. Ask God to illumine the text to you. Dads and moms, ask your kids questions about the passage on Sunday afternoon. We need to take seriously our vertical love relationship with God. And if you are not trying to internalize the words of God, then we're missing the very heart of love for God. Okay. Okay. The first command in this passage is to love God wholly. The second command is to internalize his word. And they're in order. Love God wholly, then internalize his word, because you love him and you want to get to know him. And the final command is then, number three, to teach his ways. To teach his ways in verses 7 through 9. And we're not going to be able to cover all this, I can tell you already. So uh, that's okay. To teach his ways. Look at verse 7. Remember, then, 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 verse 7, then you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Stop there. So, after personally appropriating through the Spirit of the living God, God's word to your heart because you love God, then teach the word. Then give it away. And the direct, the direct text says, give it away to your kids. Give it away to them. So moms and dads, everybody, disciple-making disciples of Jesus who want to give the word away to others, don't miss the order of the commands of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, and obey three commands. First, love God wholly, which manifests in meditating on and internalizing the word for yourself, and then you will have something to say. It is so true. I went to a seminar. I heard a guy speak about, it was kind of a cliche, but restored to poor. And I'm like, oh, great, here we go, restored to poor. 
But I was like, you're right. I have to be as a pastor, as a father, as a Christian. I have to be restored and filled up with the knowledge of Christ, with the glory of Christ so that I can pour out, so that I can give that away. If not, I will have nothing to give you as a pastor. I will have nothing to give my kids. Listen, I, I'm convinced of this. The, more, the older I get, the best that we will give our children is an overflow of our own personal walk with Jesus and love relationship with Jesus through the Word. If, if you have no deep relationship with God, if your faith in God is shallow, your love for God is lukewarm and divided, you may read and talk to your kids about the Bible, you may get them to church, you may attempt to pray with them, but it's very possible they will not get the point, at least not from you. We have to go after Christ. And then give it away. And then give it away. And I'm failed miserably, just like you. I've been a SpongeBob frantic in front of my family, not having faith, complaining and groping and filled with self-pity like you. It's not too late. Truth must be disseminated with integrity. So listen, if you're growing in your ability to nurture your children, mom, if you're growing in your ability to bring the word of God to your kids, dad, let me tell you why you're growing in that. Because you're growing in your personal love relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why. So that's the first observation, to notice the order of that. But then second observation about verse 7 is this. And these are hard words today. We'll get over it here in a couple of weeks. I pray that we don't. Parents are commanded to teach the word to their children, not the pastors. Now, don't throw anything. In the final analysis, it's not my responsibility or a Sunday school teacher's responsibility to teach the, the child the Bible to your kids. Parents, it's your responsibility. It's a shocking thought, because, but, but I just want to bring some balance here. We go down, we got a, we got a 50 minute Sunday school time, 45. 15 of that, well, five of that is spent figuring stuff out, and then 10 of that is spent learning some songs for the next music thing. Then you got to get into the class. Then you get into the lesson, you get them calmed down. So 20 minutes a week is all we have with your kids. That's not going to insulate your kids from the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil is not passive, he is active. The world, the flesh, and the devil are on a rampage against the souls of our children. And it's going to take more than 20 minutes a week. I'll do the 20 minutes a week. I'm not despising the 20 minutes a week. We're going to keep doing the 20 minutes a week. But I think that one of the best things we can do as a church is to equip the parents 
disciple their children. One time I was at Twin Cities Bible Church just getting going in ministry. They said, you start in a youth group, so I did, and I was teaching all kinds of fun stuff in the youth group. And one time a dad came to me with a 16-year-old rebellious child, said, hey, you're doing all this stuff in Matthew. It's really good. What are you doing wrong? I, I just was bold enough, maybe I was young and brash, to say, you know, that's not my job, that's your job. You see, he wanted to pin off the responsibility to me. It's the drop-off mentality with youth ministry that is prevalent in our culture, the drop-off mentality. If verse 7 teaches anything, it teaches this. Mom and dad, teaching the Bible to your children is non-optional. No matter what else your job description is, and it's a long job description, changing diapers, washing clothes, providing an income, playing games, tucking them in, making food, no matter what else you believe your various parental jobs are, nothing else you do to your children, for your children, or with your children is more important than teaching the word of God to your children. And that leads us to two applications. Number one, is we then to finally find out what verse 7 means. Let's just think about this, okay? What does the word teach mean in verse 7? It's not the typical word for teaching. The word for teaching literally is to take um, like an arrowhead and take a, um, a, a stone and sharpen it over and over that's the word for teaching here. It's a repetitive sharpening of a knife, a sword, or an arrow. Over and over again. Repetition. I know we're just... Don't, how many times have I told you, right, we say? Repetition. Over and and over and over again. The, the essential nature of teaching our children in this passage is impressing the word to, on our children repetitively to the point that they are sh shaped and sharpened by our teaching. What do we repeat? Well, the word. If you want some practical helps, I have an extra book table out that I laid out my favorite uh, devotion books out there. But I'm just, I'll, let me give you some ideas. I'm going to get real practical with you. What do we repeat over and over again? You repeat the big picture theme of the Bible, and his name is Jesus. And you go from creation, and you go from fall, right, and, and to restoration and the new creation. You give them a big picture. You give them a framework to hang the Bible on. And then you teach theology to your kids. They have to have a big and a right view of God. If the Shema means something, they have to have that, the attributes of God. You give them stories about missionaries and church history. And if repetition in means something, then catechism and actually learning 
um, by repeating and memorization is good. And most importantly, you teach them about Jesus. You teach them about the gospel. You teach them about who God is, that he's a, that he's a just God. And you teach them that he's the creator and their owner and the lover of their souls and their, their little sinners through and through and they've pulled away from God. They're far from home, but he wants them back home and he's come all the way into the darkness to bring them back home and his name is Jesus and you exalt the glories of Christ and then you're not going to be shy about telling them that they have a response too. It's to repent and turn from that sin and to put their trust in Jesus. You tell them repetitively about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know what you're saying. This is, you're saying two things. I said this too. Number one, you're saying this. I'm not equipped to do this. And here's the answer to that. Get equipped. And, 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 we, and this, is, this is my favorite. This is, why I'm, this is why the pastors of this church are here, to equip you in the work of ministry to your children. So get equipped. Um, if you're going to teach the children the scriptures, you, you've got to begin to learn the scriptures yourself. We've talked about that. There's really no escaping that. But on the other hand, secondly, yeah, get equipped. But then I would say this. Look, if you're a believer, you're equipped. You have the spirit, just do it. Go for it. Go for it. The Lord will help you. Vadi Bakum says, quotes, if you can read, you can teach your children the word of God, end quotes. Just stay a step ahead of them. <laughs> Look answers up for them. Talk to, to your pastor about your kids' questions if you're stuck. Don't be afraid. God has called you to do it. If he's called you to do it, he will equip you through his spirit. The Bible is clear. The Holy Spirit will illumine and for guide. And I'm telling you, it's hard work. Verse 7 says, you shall teach them diligently. The word diligently means it's going to take diligence to do this. It's difficult. And so let me give you two further than applications of number one, it's called family worship. If that's too Puritan for you, change it. Family devotions. If it's if that's too then family time. If that Call it what you want to call it. Just do it. What is family worship? Well, there can be three elements, I think, in family worship. One, we don't, I don't do nearly enough, and I'd like to start now that I'm re rethinking my life after this sermon, is to even have a time of singing with your kids. Maybe you get a good, uh, a good hymn book or praise book together and you begin to sing. Number two, time in the Word of God. Um, for younger children, get a good children's Bible or a Bible story book. There's many good family devotionals. Try a lot of variety. There's great resources out there. I do, I set up a tiny little book table that has all my personal favorites out there. And from the gospel to church history to missionary stories to the attributes of God to theology, it shows you sort of the breadth of what I've desired to give away to my kids. And you can tell which ones we like the most. They're the ones that are falling apart. They're not for you to take. Uh, you can take a picture of the cover and order them up, and let's get going on this. And then prayer. It's got to be a high priority to pray. Take prayer requests with your kids. Have your kids pray. Out, pray. Um, 
model prayer for your kids. Teach them to pray. Teach them to depend upon the Lord. Let me give you some practical tips for family devotions. Number one, use vocabulary that your kids understand. I'm not good at this. I'm getting better at this. Kids, this verse teaches the federal imputation of the guilt of the first Adam to his posterity. Thanks, Dad. Number two, keep the teaching time short depending on the child's attention span. Five minutes consistently is better than five hours. Here's what I do. I miss four days. I think I need two-hour family devotion to make up for it. It's called legalism. It kills. So keep it short. It's a sin to make God's word boring. Number three, encourage interaction. Some of the most fruitful discussion in our family time is question and answer time, Holy Spirit rabbit trails. Do not be so locked in to your agenda that you can't take a Holy Spirit rabbit trail. That's the good stuff. Number four, since repetition is essential in the Shema, in their focus on teaching, consider including children's catechism in your family worship. Pastor Dan has a great little family worship guide that is on that table, my little book table that I set up. Take a look. It's free. We'll print off those for you. And in one of the things that in there is a weekly catechism question. Number five, keep it simple. You don't need any bulletins for family worship. Dads, you don't need PowerPoint. Um, family worship is for the family. Um, it's difficult because now you, I have kids that are out of the house working, but try to get as many people that, that can be there as you can. Um, don't worry about the age differences. Uh, and, if, and if they're not all there, stop crying about it. That's what I do. And just get on with it. How often do you do this, Pastor Jeff? Here's the answer. Consistently. But don't be legalistic about it. I mean, the Pur- don't read the Puritans on this. It'll be depressing. Morning, noon, and night. In real life, I'll just tell you my goal. I don't ever achieve my goal, but here's my goal. When we don't have a gathered meeting of the church, on, like on a Wednesday and a Sunday, yes, we have a gathered meeting of the church. So I may ask some questions about the sermon, but that won't be an official. But the other days I try to get something in. Um, do not, 15, 20 minutes is enough. 10 minutes is fine. How do I get started? Men, take the lead in this in your families. Get off the couch, turn off the TV, right, Jody? And know that there will be much resistance from all the forces of darkness. If you try this, if you try this, you'll be astounded at how much you'll be opposed. You'll be astounded at the level of spiritual warfare in your, in your house that night. So develop a good habit. Soon the children will ask, are we doing family worship? They'll grow to love the time together in the word. That has been my experience. And if I lose consistency, they lose interest. Settle on a routine that works. Sometimes it's after dinner. Whatever works for you. And adjust for irregularities. Make it a joy. It's the word of God. Enjoy God. Enjoy your family. 
Don't beat yourself up if you miss it. Take those children and their arrows. They're meant to be shot into the darkness of this world, lit up by Christ. Sharpen the tip of those arrows. Sharpen the tip of the arrows. Now some of you are saying, I've blown this. Not in my notes. I know. It's never too late. Do not give up. Grandparents. Deuteronomy is filled with exhortations of grandparents to, to, to be part of this. Filled with it. Don't give up. You'd be surprised what they were hearing. Ask, I, ask Newton when he was sinking in that ship, the slave trader who had his mother till age five, who then died. And he remembered all of her teachings when he was near death and converted to Christ and wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. It's only part of it, though. And, and watch this. Family worship is only part of the equation. Now look at verse 7. And watch this. I'm, I'm about to shock you. It shocked me to be reminded of this. It's not even the main point of verse 7. It's not the main form of teaching in verse 7. Take a look at it. Now watch out. Here we go. I just deliver the mail. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. So, the beginning, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you... So, we're, we're moving past sort of this command to teach consistently and we're talking about a lifestyle of discipleship in the home. No matter what you're doing or where you are or what time it is in the day, mom and dad, you are looking for opportunities to connect the Word of God that is from an overflow of your own personal walk with Christ. So it's right there on your forehead. Next verse. And you're taking that and you're saying, aha, there's a real-life moment with a real-life passage and you are to connect them right then and there. And I'm telling you, this will blow apart your list of things to do. This will blow apart your Google calendar. This will blow apart busyness in our culture if we're going to be obedient. It just will. It will. It will. And you will have to make a choice. One or the other will suffer. Your list or your offspring. I'm preaching to myself here. If you know me, you know that I can't do this in the flesh. So, when you're relaxing in the confines of your home, speak about Jesus. When you walk on the way outside of your house, carrying on daily business and activities. Speak about Jesus. When? Where? Everywhere. When? Every time. Rising in the morning to retiring at bed at night. Be ready for opportunities to speak about and apply God's word to your children's lives. And that's interesting is right, the best time to apply it. They're eager to learn. They know they need it. In that moment, Anytime, all the time, 
anywhere. I remember distinctly, and I'm going to confess if you will, so here I go. It's my turn. It was, it was a success. I hate to do success. I never want to do success stories from the pastor. This ended up being a success by God's grace. A few years ago, one of my young boys, they were younger. I think I don't remember if, which of the three amigos it was. In the morning, came up to me and said, Daddy, are ghosts real? Hannah said they were. <laughs> now, at that moment, I was, I was late for a meeting. I was late to get to the office. I was behind for the sermon prep. It was a time in our lives where I was finishing seminary up. I was buying a house, and I, I was just strung out, and I was tempted to say, no, ghosts are not real, and just go to the office. But instead, by God's grace, I took this little boy on my lap. I talked to him about bodies and about our spirit. I talked about angels. And yes, I talked about demons. And I talked about the joy of seeing Jesus face to face. I talked about the gospel. And you know what? He, his eyes were big. You know why? Because it was a moment. It was his question. It was his connection at that moment. I mean, this is a kid that, in family devotions, he's like Stevie Wonder. But it was, for him, a real-life connection at that moment. And if you're not convinced from my story, which could have been a failure, but in that case, I succeeded, look at the text in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. When your son asks you, did you notice that? When your son asks you in the time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall get your list done and get to it when you have it on your list. No. Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us into this land, son, to give us the land which he has sworn to our fathers. And so you have that teaching example right here in the context. Moms and dads, grandma and grandpas, aunts and uncles, don't miss the opportunities to apply the Word of God in the context of real-life situations. Disciple-making disciples of Jesus Christ, listen to me. This passage is about the Christian life. It's not primarily about parenting. What is the best discipleship in this church? Is it going to be formal every two-week meetings? In my experience, no. And I hate to, whatever I just did, I'm just saying, in my experience, no. The best discipleship opportunities are living life together in, in the context of serving together and using our gifts together and having conversations. I'm just saying. And I think that is consistent with the heart of Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So, I'm just such... I just want to do something with my life. And so, some days I don't think sitting with my little boys and playing Legos is doing something. 
It's a lie from the devil. Play those games. Take that time. Start now. It's not too late. Moms, this is your day. Painful day for some. A day to celebrate moms in this room. You have a short time with your kids. Engage your mind. Let them have your heart. Mom, mom, listen to me. Your daily battle with the mess, the stink, the clutter, the diapers, the talking back, the constant conflict, they're not just simple inconveniences. They're heartaches. But I want you to see the glory in that, the glory in the mundane, and the opportunity to bring the word of God to bear at a time when your kids are ripe to listen. Moms, I get it. The world belittles your efforts, belittles them. But we know differently. Motherhood is the highest calling of all, for the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. That cleaning Saturday with my littles long ago has come and gone. But it has reminded me that the mundane of this life is an opportunity to love God wholly, to internalize his word to our own hearts, and to teach our children the word of God. If you can go this afternoon, give you an assignment, look at verse 8. Look at verse 9. It continues. To be committed to put the word of God on our foreheads and to have our thinking ruled by the word of God, to have the word of God bound to our hands, governing our actions, governing our mind, governing our actions. And I'm telling you, if we commit to this church and families in this church, then I'm telling you the light of Christ will shine from this place. Because verse 9 says so. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Your homes will be marked as God's territory. And may all who enter into the doors of this church family and may all who come into contact with our families in the cul-de-sac or at Culver's sense the sweet presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and the aroma of the gospel would go forth to them from life to life. Hear, O church, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.